You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome back to National Security Law Today. With the American elections less than one week away, Yvette, Elisa, and I are continuing our conversation with Edward Ned Foley, a professor at The Ohio State Moritz College of Law and the Ebersold Chair of Constitutional Law there. He has quite literally written the book on disputed elections in the U.S. And he's here to talk to us more about election law and why our elections look the way they do. If you'd like to hear more from Ned, please go back and listen to last week's episode. But before we start this week, just a quick disclaimer, because lawyers need and live by disclaimers, the lawyers at NSLT are always here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. So we've been kind of dancing around this, the uh, the specter of Bush v. Gore. Um, we'd love to get, you know, your sense of this case. I still have, uh, you know, some scarring from Bush v. Gore. This was the year 2000. I'm dating myself, but this election was the first election I voted for for president. I was very excited about it. And I went to bed like the rest of America and woke up and we did not have a president for some several weeks afterwards and Uh for the millennials out there uh, who don't know what a hanging chat is this was when we had uh, voting machines that did not fully punch through the ballot and so they there were there were pools there were there were rooms full of people craning over these ballots and trying to figure out what the voters intent was and it was quite a calamity. So can you just tell us a little bit about that case, why um, Chief Justice uh, Roberts uh, currently is is probably straining against this nightmare scenario? Yeah, no, thanks for all of that, because I think those of us who do remember it definitely have some personal history and emotions associated with it. How, If you care about the country and you you're you're involved in the law and even interested in politics. You were definitely riveted uh, for those wrenching 35, 36 days. Uh, at least I was. So I, I I feel your, you know, I share your 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 memory of that. Um, you know, I've had the um, privilege as a professor to teach that case now for 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 two decades, and I will say my own views about the case have evolved considerably as a result of teaching it. And I think it's important. Um, at least I try to tell my students that there were really two different holdings in the U.S. Supreme Court case called Bush versus Gore, one of which was seven to two, and the other was five to four. And the seven to two ruling was the, the merits ruling on the equal protection issue, and we can talk about the details of that. The five to four ruling was on the procedural question of what to do once the equal protection violation was found and whether there was gonna be a remand to permit another recount. So just to give you, you know, be candid about telling you where I come out on this now, um, which again is different from what I thought as I was watching it at the time, I now think that the seven to two ruling on equal protection was correct. In other words, the seven justices who found an equal protection violation were correct to do so based on existing precedent uh, and constitutional principles. And we can talk more about that. But my own view is that the five to four decision on the remand was incorrect and 
inappropriate given the relationship of the United States Supreme Court to the Florida Supreme Court and technical questions of federal jurisdiction. And we can talk a, about that. So already there, there's, I think, some complexity. It sometimes gets lost in the public discourse about the case. So, Professor, if, if you would indulge us, can you break this down a little bit for us, uh, especially for the law students out there who may not have taken election law? Um, what were the circumstances? Um, you know, we essentially, uh, Florida, um, the Florida uh, electoral votes were hanging in the balance. We couldn't pick our president without knowing the outcome of the Florida election. Uh, as you said before, it was extraordinarily narrow margin. We didn't know the night of the election. People were still counting, still counting, still counting. And we had all these problematic ballots. And there were numerous state level cases that were filed in order to try and resolve some of the procedures. And, and we really were in a no man's land trying to figure out what we should do. Um, so I'm glad I let you pick up the fact pattern from there, Professor. Yeah, no, that all of that's true. Um, so, you know, if, if there are listeners who don't remember what a hanging chad looks like or had never had occasion to think about a hanging chad before and you're interested just you know google an image of a hanging chad because it's worth trying to get a visual in your mind um you know these punch card ballots were you know pieces of paper and then um the voters were required to take a a stylus kind of like a, a metal instrument a pin and and kind of punch a hole in the in the places on the ballot next to the candidates' names that they were voting for, so whether Gore or Bush or what have you, and if all goes well, they'd punch completely through, and that would allow these optical scan machine readers to see the light and count the ballot properly. It was a primitive form of computer technology, but if, for a variety of reasons, the hanging chad wasn't all the way um, perforated and punctured it wouldn't be recorded as a vote. The, the machine couldn't tell that the voter wanted to cast a vote. And so, and some of them were called dimple chads or pregnant chads because they would show a little bit of indentation, but no puncture. And the problem of Florida law was it didn't have a statutory standard that applied statewide in an election that was a statewide election to how to treat equivalent ballots. So you had thousands and thousands of ballots presenting the exact same fact pattern in terms of what the piece of paper looked like. And yet they were being treated differently depending upon which particular locality it was in. Was it Palm Beach County or Broward County or Miami-Dade County? Sometimes the same ballots were being treated differently by just different recount teams in the same county like Palm Beach County. And so that was the equal protection problem. So, you know, so the, the seven justices on the US Supreme Court said, you've got to have a statewide uniform standard. It, choose your standard state of Florida. It could be a requirement. One of the possible standards was, was the so-called sunshine standard from the sunshine state, which means if you held the ballot up to the light, you'd see light through it and that would require a puncture, which means if it was only dimpled or pregnant, it wouldn't count it would have to be hanging or at least punctured. But those, so, so seven justices said, you have to have uniformity because if you don't, it violates one person, one vote. One person, one vote was this constitutional principle from the Warren Court precedents saying that there was this under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, 
given the importance of voting, there had to be this requirement of equality of equal treatment of voters. And so if you had the exact same ballot counted in this election, if it's in Palm Beach, but rejected if it's in Broward, that's a denial of equal protection. Again, I have to say that's a pretty strong argument. And again, that got you know the five so-called conservatives at the time, plus Justice Breyer and Justice Souter, more liberal justices, all seven saying this is an equal protection problem. But then that led to the next question of the remedy. And here's where Breyer and Souter joined the other two liberals, Justices Ginsburg and, Justice, and Stevens, saying, give Florida another chance. Because given that the case was coming from the Florida Supreme Court, appropriate principles of federal review meant that once you find the equal protection violation under the federal constitution, you identify it and then you remand for a cure. And it's up to the state system to decide how to handle the case on remand. But the majority of the US Supreme Court in Bush versus Gore refused to allow a remand for any further recounting, which was sort of inconsistent with basic jurisdictional principles. What was their basis for that? they relied on something called the so-called safe harbor deadline, which is a provision of federal law. But it's a funny deadline because it's not absolute. The safe harbor concept says that if a state finishes its procedures over how to count ballots by that date, then Congress promises to um, accept that decision. But it's optional on the part of the state if they don't meet that deadline, all they lose is the benefit of the congressional promise. So it really should have been up to Florida law to decide whether meeting the safe harbor was more important than doing another recount. Because there were six more days until the meeting of the electoral college where there could have been another recount. The majority in the US Supreme Court says, well, Florida has already told us that they wanna meet the safe harbor deadline that's the date of our decision, so I guess time is up. But the dissent said, well, wait a second. If it's Florida's decision, they can revisit that decision. Yes, they've said safe harbor is important to it, but they haven't specifically said which is more important, the safe harbor deadline or trying to do it correctly and have a recount. So that's why I think the dissent had the better of the argument on what the remedy should have been. It should have been a remand to give Florida, another chance to decide what to do. That was well, awesome I explication. Um, and, uh, and I appreciate that. That would certainly um, bring it factually home and explain the process. But um, I'd like to, Yvette, do I hear you? Yeah, I have. I just have one follow-up question because this is this is really you know the seminal case, right? As far as you know, people who at least as, at least as far as lay people are concerned, or lawyers who don't um, practice uh, election law uh, professionally, I wonder what your opinion is about you know the fact that the that the the um, opinion explicitly states that it has limited presidential value. I think this was one of the most uh, controversial aspects of the case, you, you know. Uh, aside from the fact that it, you know, it effectively decided the, um, the outcome of the election. Yeah, so I think a lot of people have misunderstood that sentence. It is true that sentence says, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, that our decision is, you know, limited to the facts in front of us. 
But, and, and we now know that Justice O'Connor added that sentence um, to what was an opinion otherwise written by Justice Kennedy. But, but and some people have said that that was a, an announcement by the court that they were being unprincipled and they were just you know ramming a decision through and it was gonna have no precedential value. I don't think that makes any sense in terms of the mindset of the justices and why would they telegraph that? I think instead it was the kind of sentence that Justice O'Connor thought was appropriate given her overall jurisprudence in so many areas of the law. If you've studied Justice O'Connor's um, writings in the Fourth Amendment, you know, the totality of the circumstances for search and seizure, or her views on the Establishment Clause, separation of church and state, which she talks about the endorsement test, and it's very context specific in terms of the exact facts involved. She was always a justice who cared very much about specific facts and not wanting to write too broadly. You know, the common law method of judging one case at a time, you know, don't write too broadly. I think that's what they were saying. In other words, this was very fast moving, right? Because it, you know, it was on the emergency docket, it had to be decided quickly. And so the, the, she and the court were telling the world, just be careful not to overread what we're doing. We're doing the best our can, uh, we can, we're deciding an equal protection case, but equal protection is complicated. And so we're deciding what equal protection means here, but it may mean something different in another context. I think that's ordinary judging. I don't think that was unprincipled. And I don't think it was a statement like, you know, rip up this opinion after you read it because it's never going to apply again. I, that, I just think that's a, a misunderstanding of what the court was doing. That's really um, useful uh, context uh, for people who are reading the, uh, the decision these days. Well, happy to happy to provide it. And one, just one more little point about um, the relationship of the decision to the election. I do think there's a common understanding that the U.S. Supreme Court, by issuing the Bush versus Gore decision, was effectively deciding the election uh, that year, that presidential election. And there's certainly a way to understand it that way. But I think an even better way to understand it is how Al Gore responded to the decision. Um, because he did have some extra moves he might have made. He could have tried to be aggressive back in the Florida Supreme Court by saying the U.S. Supreme Court didn't really have the authority to take away the remand option. And his advisors were actually telling him to keep fighting on. Now, that's not to say that he would have won, but I think the best way to understand the 2000 election is that it was Al Gore's decision to accept defeat after the US Supreme Court's decision that effectively ended it. It wasn't the Supreme Court all by itself that brought an end to that election. All right, that's fascinating. We, um, we're gonna have to move on away from uh, Bush v. Gore for just a little while though. Um, we, we wanna project forward because we're just a couple of weeks out from the election as we're recording this. And there has been a lot of discourse on both sides about whether or not the election would be treated as, election results rather, would be treated as legitimate. For some of our listeners who may not have heard some of this, what is the rhetoric that's been used? Um, why are these remarks a problem for the American people on both sides? Yeah, so we've heard terms like rigging the election or stolen the election and all sorts of things like that. Sometimes you hear that the election's 
going to be hacked or the voters are going to be hacked or the voters' minds are going to be hacked. I mean, you know, some metaphors are kind of, you know, creative and, and, and uh, interesting to, to, to think about, but in, in an environment that is as polarized as we are now and as fraught with, with you know, anxiety and, and misunderstanding, I think it's important to step back and ask ourselves, you know, what do we expect of our electoral process? What do we want it to achieve? And how can we know if it's working at least well enough? There isn't ever a completely perfect election. It's a human enterprise involving millions of people and millions of ballots. Um, so it's gonna have blemishes, it always has. In 2012, there was long lines that led to a commission appointed to deal with the long line problems. We're seeing long lines again. And of course the pandemic is causing this year challenges, just the infrastructure and, and, and casting votes and counting votes. Um, so I think the way to evaluate the system is to think about the fact that the reason to have an election is to produce a winner that gets a mandate as a result of the votes that are cast and counted. In other words, we want our office holders to hold office with a pedigree that comes from the people. The declaration talks about governments deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. You know, Gettysburg, government of the people, by the people, for the people. We want our government to reflect self-government, self-rule. And the way to do that is to say, do we the voters as a group, when we cast our votes, do, the, do those ballots when counted, do they authentically reflect the choice that we as a group have made? And the answer to that can be yes, even if there's some problems along the way, because as long as the, the outcome reflects the aggregate choice, it's the correct outcome. It may be off by three or four votes, but in, a, in an election that was decided by thousands of votes, a counting error of three or four doesn't undermine the validity of the result. Now, I never want any single voter to be disenfranchised. I want every voter to be able to fully participate, but I'm realistic to know that perfection isn't possible and, and we have to regret when there are problems. But if we all go to the polls knowing that we're doing this not for ourselves as an individual, we're doing this as Americans, as we the people, if we get the correct result on our collective behalf, we can be proud of the system achieving its essential purpose. So that's the standard that I think we should bring to bear to evaluate this year, whether we can pull this off even in the midst of this pandemic and have a result that is authentic because it reflects our genuine choice. Well, we certainly have more voters this time um, in some states uh, by a factor of 200 times the numbers who have turned out in previous elections. So I hope that um, that means that your vision is more likely to be realized. And I'd like to go back though, because civil unrest regrettably has happened in the past. And it's also important to understand history in order to avoid repeating it. But uh, there was once a buckshot war, a civil war, a Colfax massacre, massacre 
So walk us through some of these major moments of civil unrest and why they happened and how divisions over elections played into that. Yeah, so the 19th century, unfortunately, has more incidents of violence surrounding the vote counting process uh, than the 20th century did. So the good, the way to turn that around is that the 20th century does not have the degree, anything like the degree of violence that, that history shows existed in the 19th century. And so when I wrote the book, I had been hopeful and I, I'd like to remain hopeful that the 21st century builds on the progress of the 20th and that we don't regress back to the 19th century. So yes, you mentioned the Buckshot War in Pennsylvania in the 1830s or the Brooks-Braxter War in Arkansas in the 1870s. Um, so there were these really regrettable incidents um, of outright violence around the vote counting process. Uh, and, you know, each one of those stories, you know, is, is I mean, it's, the narratives I think are, can be gripping. And so I encourage people who are interested to, to try to learn this history. I think the big picture takeaway is, again, we, we've been struggling as a society, what should be our institution? And the reason why the 20th century was better than the 19th is that on balance, th these disputes got put into the state court systems. Before in the 19th century, the legislatures tended to hold, we talked about the role of the legislatures and the legislatures tended to be jealously holding on to their power to, to resolve these. But legislatures tend to be the most partisan of institutions because they're elected on based on party politics. So that's why some of these disputes could get really ugly really fast. Putting them into court tended to make them pursuant to the rule of law. And the rule of law on balance has done a better job than the rule of the streets or the hurly-burly of the legislature. So as you know, us as lawyers, I think we can take credit for the extent to which that we've made these disputes as hard as they can be subjected to evidence, and legality, that has been a, a real progress and a real progress of the 20th century. Again, some of the courts that have handled these disputes have been caught up in the po politics of it. That's why we ask sometimes, is it better to do this in federal court or state court, or should we have special courts that we've talked about before? But um, I think the main lesson here is the more that we can make vote counting disputes subjected to the rule of law and to the rule of evidence when you challenge ballots, the better off we are as a society. So we're talking with you today following the president's diagnosis with COVID-19. Uh, how could or how has uh, in the past any presidential incapacitation been a, faction in the, a factor in the elections? Are there any specific constitutional authorities the president could use to delegate power um, to other people in the line of succession or outside of it in lieu of the vice president. Has this played out in any other previous elections? Well, I think the good news here is um, our system can handle most of the contingencies that we can imagine, although there are some gaps that hopefully we'll, we'll avoid. Um, for, so one thing to be clear, the, the current incumbent president has no power over the electoral process directly. So, you know, he can't say, I want the election to be run this way instead of that way. I mean, the constitution has a definite date to the end of the term, that's January 20th at noon. 
Um, if the election for some reason is incomplete and everybody agrees that we have a mechanism in the 20th Amendment for an acting president and we have a statute that sets that all up. So there's a certain amount of clarity. Um, in 1872, we, we did have a candidate die and so that can cause some issues under the Electoral College. You know, the effect of the death of a presidential candidate or a vice presidential candidate can matter depending on where you are and the timing of the process. Is it before the electors meet in December or is it after? Um, and, and again, you know, some of the experts on issues of continuity of government have suggested we could do a little bit better in bolstering up those, those rules. Um, I do think it comes back to the point that we were talking about earlier that, you know, if, if problems occur in the electoral college mechanism, there is the capacity for state legislatures to take the power to appoint electors into their own hands. And so if you did have the a death of a candidate, again, before the electors meet, the legislature could say, well, hey, we're just going to do this ourselves, um, as opposed to having it be based on a popular vote or some other substitute mechanism. I'm not saying that, that I advocate that solution or that would be the best way to go about it. There might be other ways to turn to the political party and say, okay, now that you've lost your candidate, who would you like as a substitute? So it's a bit of a complicated story. Um, again, I think the, the, the takeaway that I would emphasize is in a rule of law society, we should rely on the rules that we have to answer questions that might arise. If we wanna change the rules in the future because we don't like them, that's for the next election. But ultimately you have to hold each and every election according to the rules that exist at the time the election is underway. And our election this year is already underway. As you've noted, many ballots have already been cast, even though we're still, as we're recording, you know, two weeks before November 3rd, but this election is definitely underway. And so it's a little late to be changing any of the rules for this year. Ned, I'd like to go back to your comments in Politico. Um, the piece will be hyperlinked for our listeners. You point out that Americans need to get smarter about elections, but we do have um, social media companies with secret proprietary algorithms, and um, they engage in something called micro-targeting. And it turns out that people are still clicking on uh, false messages at, 40 at a rate of 40 times more often as true ones. Um, you have noted some solutions have been pro proposed um, to assure fairness of any decision by the Supreme Court, but what are your thoughts on sort of where we stand on issues law as opposed to elections law, which appears to be persuasive or was persuasive so potentially in the last election? Yeah, well, this may be the hardest thing for our democracy to handle going forward because there is disinformation, there is misinformation. Um, you know, I don't deny that and I'm troubled by it. Um, I refer back to the Swift Boat ads of 2004, which, you know, is low tech relative to where we are today and so doesn't deal with the extra problems that high tech, you know, gives us. Um, Deep fakes, for example, which I'm sure your audience knows about as a, as a new technology. But the Swift Boat um, ads that people remember from 2004 was um, 
a character attack on the military service record of, of John Kerry, who was the presidential candidate that year. And my analysis of the independent nonpartisan fact-checking organizations said that those attacks were false and an incorrect characterization, a mischaracterization of his, of his war record. It was a kind of misinformation, disinformation campaign using the media technology of the time. And it did go viral on the internet. The amount of money spent on, on that was, was low. Now that was a candidate related ad. Uh, and there are issue, there's misinformation in the issue space, which, which makes it even harder a problem. The point though, is those messages can be persuasive. John Kerry, I, I believe he wrote in his memoirs, you know, still thinks that his inadequate response to, to the swift boat, which became a verb to be swift boated when you were the subject of that kind of attack. Um, so we as a society need to think a lot going forward about the regulation of false and maybe deliberately false information, whether you know, in the form of social media posts or or otherwise. You know, the danger with government regulation, or maybe even you know, platform regulation, given the power of these platforms. This is a very complicated topic, and I don't propose to be an expert in all of the details. I look at this in in the context of the overall election law and the and the overall goal of democracy. And I come away from all of that thinking that we have to distinguish between two types of attacks on our system. You know, the first type that we were sort of talking about earlier, which is a direct attack that negates the capacity of voter choice. You know, whether it's the Russians or anybody else, if they can, if they can prevent voters from voting or stop voter participation, that is a direct denial of democracy. Um, that would undermine the authenticity of the result and mean that the, the election was a failure by the metric that we were talking about before. On the other hand, if the attack is in the form of disinformation that persuades voters to think differently about either an issue or a candidate to treat John Kerry's, to think about them, John Kerry differently and not vote for him when you might have otherwise, that's pernicious if it's if it's intentional and it's malevolent, but it operates at the at the mechanism of of, a, of affecting the voters' thinking process. It doesn't deny participation; it influences participation. And I think as we attempt to go forward in America, making our democracy better, we need to distinguish between those two types of challenges, and meet the information challenge on its own terms. Because in a free speech society, we're going to have to allow the capacity for robust discourse to be persuasive. Whether it's on new media platforms or old media platforms, there is going to be a lot of cacophony and a lot of dialogue trying to persuade people. And so we're going to have to have a conception of democracy that allows for that, that we still can claim that we the people do make our own choices as who our office holders are. Well, this has been really fantastic, Ned. I don't know what to say. Um, we're really glad you were here. We're, we beg you in advance to come back and see us when this election is over, if it's decided soon um, or not. 
um, if we're still having this conversation, our matters are still being resolved. We'd really like to have you back. And thanks right. to everybody um, who listening, who's listening to this right now. We will make sure that we hyperlink to Ballot Battles, uh, Ned's book, and as well as all of his articles. We will also hyperlink to the Bush v. Gore opinion if you're one of the people who has not had an opportunity to read it. Um, and thanks for listening to National Security Law Today. We'll bring you more National Security Law news next week as this election season unfolds. Remember to vote. People died for us to have that right. You can also hit that subscribe button on your app of choice to listen to more of our episodes. Be sure to send us comments and feedback. Find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And make sure you vote. This time there are no excuses. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will continue to keep you informed about all these legal developments. Oh, and I recommend that before you get into any kind of a romantic relationship, ask that very important question first. And you know what that is. Did you care enough about your country to actually vote? Thank you, Lisa. Do not forget, listeners, that the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on, not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, everyone, and be safe. We're all in this together, even though we are apart and even though we have different views. Let's come together through education, knowledge, and growth. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. Thank you.